Doug South Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. We're mass communicating. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for them. This is the End of the Line Podcast, powered by DougSouth.com. I give it a, uh, a 10. A 10. Sweep the leg. You have a problem with that. And now, here your host, Rocky LaFleur. Everybody on? Good. Great. Grand. Wonderful. No yelling in the butt. Josh Webb. Sorry I had a fight in the middle of your butt. I'm party. And Jake LaTondres. I'm bad news. Also starring Rob Crew. I bet this guy's into the woods a hundred bucks. And Bradley Ramsey. Bill Martin inside. Showtime. All right, here we go. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. Showtime, everybody. Showtime. Welcome to the End of the Line podcast. I'm Rocky Before sitting in the Ducks House Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. Nobody's joining me on the other end of the line. I'm bringing you another greatest of episodes. Today, I am bringing you three of probably the greatest medical emergency moments in podcast history at the end of the line podcast. They were moments of great people that at the time, they were really, really bad. They These guys did not let those moments define who they were. Let them make them into the great person that they are today. First off, we're going to start with Pat Pitt. Uh, Pat had a heart attack while in a duck blind at the Langill Lounge. And Pat tells us about that. And I recovered from that. And I made it out of that pit to the hospital that day. I mean, Patrick. Man, they really go into great detail telling that story. We'll get to that right now. I want to, I think the best story to start this out with is one that your dad was talking about today. Patrick, you saved his life in the middle yeah. of the rice field in <laughs> Arkansas. Yeah, I want you that that peak when Mr. Pat told me that story. I'm sitting there with my mouth open, and we'll get to the look. We'll, we will cover family history and the the history of Mr. Pat. I want to start this off with that story because I think it'll show the closeness of you two. Well, to begin before this came about, you got to understand that that Patrick and Stephen both were prepared for something to go south. And the reason being because, now, they grew up with tough love. I mean, uh, I rode them like a rented mule a lot of times because, you know, when you put a shotgun in a kid's hands, that's a tremendous responsibility. And I did my dead-level best to teach them to think, you know, Luckily, Patrick was thinking a lot more clear than I was at the time. I just knew that that uh, from what little bit I remembered from my biology days that that this wasn't you know just 
a muscle cramp. I mean, I, I knew exactly. I tried to deny it at first, but so were you in the blind by yourself that day, Mister Pine? Yeah, I was in a I was in the pit by myself. There was another guy headed out that way, but you know, well, he had, we were, Jeff had made it out there with you by the time it all went down. Yeah, well, and, yeah. About time Jeff got there, I killed a duck that fell and hit. We were thawing. It fell and hit the ice and slid up under it. So I walked out there with the dog to break the ice loose, so, so he could get the duck because obviously he couldn't see it under the ice. And on the way back, that's when it started. And I got back in the pit, and I mean, this was January the what, son, sixteenth? I think that's right. It's cold, but. Uh, I mean, I was sweating like a Democrat doing math. I mean, I, it was pouring off of me. And, you know, the pain started in my my arm uh, uh, going numb and it rotating all the way up into my chest and shortness of breath. And, I mean, and about the time Jeff got there, I said, I don't even know if I said hello, how's your mother, or nothing. I, the irony of this is we don't use four-wheelers at our club for several reasons. Uh, we use them, you know, before the season to haul stuff to the pits, but I don't like rutting up the farmer's fields, and they appreciate that. I don't like roaring out there with lights on and, and mud slinging before daylight and running all the ducks out of the field. It's just like, you know, waking somebody up out of a good sleep. They don't want to sleep there the next day. So, But we just happened to have one because we were doing some work on that pit that, that we needed a four-wheeler to carry some stuff out there, and, and Patrick had taken it back to the truck and already had it loaded on the trailer, I think, son, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I had it loaded and strapped and everything. Yeah, well, I mean, he was going to come He was gonna come out there with me when I when I called him. Uh, you know, the funny thing about it, you know, Patrick's a lot like me. I mean, he's hard-headed and opinionated, but normally when I ask him a question or tell him something, we'll have a 30-minute argument, but I guess he knew from the tone of my voice <laughs> that, that, that you know, this wasn't, you know, a head cold. So. Yeah, it was kind of the same way like you were talking about, you know, not not chit-chatting with Jeff. When I answered the phone, the first thing you said was, come get me. And I could tell, I, I could tell in your voice that something wasn't right. You said, come get me, I don't feel good. Well, it was an effort to talk, I can tell you that. But the And I knew it, it wasn't, I knew, you know, I know you well enough that it, you if you didn't feel good, you'd have killed your ducks and then walked out and left Jeff out there. Yeah, well, I've done that before. But, uh, yeah, but I, I told, mean, when you, you know, I, I used to tell right away. Yeah, well, I used to tell the boys that said, you know, hell, if I die in a duck pit, y'all go ahead and shoot my limit, or if you shoot over the limit, just blame me. It's like you know, weekend at Bernie's, but uh, <laughs> uh, one of my favorites. I, you know, <laughs> and I, I, I used to. I used to talk about, you know, you get romantic and philosophical and say, well, man, if I want to die, I want to die in a turkey wood or die in a duck pit or whatever. It ain't near as much fun as you think it is because uh, I, I can tell for for a fact on that. But uh, when I called Patrick, he can take it from there because everything was kind of a blur for a while. Yeah, like I said, when, when he called me, I could tell in his voice that, that it was more than just, you know, your everyday I don't feel good. I could tell. And I, I was kinda like kinda like him. I was in denial but the the very that was the very first thing I thought about. Anyway, I, I unloaded four with her, drove out there, 
I pulled right up to the pit, and basically uh, he was he was standing outside the pit waiting on me, but he he was head down, kind of slumped over, and uh, I I literally pushed him onto the four wheeler. And yeah, he uh, laid he laid me across the four wheeler like a deer, just about. And I, wow. I got him up. I got him up on there. He when I pulled up, he chunked his duck up on the front rack. Had his shotgun in his hand, like I said, I took, I took that from him and pushed him up on the four wheeler. And like he had mentioned, we were we were coming off a hard freeze. The 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 ice had been probably three inches thick. As a matter of fact, that morning uh, was it that I think it was that morning we had had the four wheeler out on a different pit trying to break the ice and could get up on top of the ice with a four-wheeler. I mean, it it had been thick. But the sun had come out, and it had started to get rotten. As I was coming out, Dad's dog couldn't keep up with me. I was, I was in that big of a hurry, even in that nasty ice. And as a matter of fact, I wasn't even on my four-wheeler. So, uh, I mean, if I'd have tore it up, I, I don't, you know, that would have just been something I'd have had to dealt with at that time. But it... Ace couldn't keep up, and because he didn't know, he panicked. He didn't know what was going on. He went and got well, back to the pit. The ice was so thick and and been such big chunks, he just couldn't get through it. And this was a dog that had some of the most incredible strength ever dog I've dealt with. So. What were you feeling at this point, Mister Pat? I mean, what were you feeling in your chest or? Oh, I mean it. it it's like somebody had you know those dog stakes that got the, the cork screws you screw in the ground to stake a dog out. Yes, sir. Felt like one of those was being twisted into my chest. And the, and the bumpy ride on the four-wheeler back to the truck probably didn't make you feel any better. Well, yes. Uh, no, I mean, uh, I was in such a uh, almost a stupor. Uh, the only thing I remember telling Patrick was drop the trailer and put on the hazard lights and I'd rest of that because he drove, I guess it was, what fifteen miles, twenty miles to the? Uh, no, nah, it's it's not quite. I mean, it's probably probably twelve to fifteen to get across Rayburn and then straight up Highway One. So, Patrick, what was what was what was? I'm not gonna say what was the atmosphere like, but what was Mr. Pat the in and? I mean, was he awake? Was he in and out of consciousness as you're going? Nah, he was he was in and out. I uh, I talked to him the whole time trying to get him to respond to me. And sometimes he would and sometimes he wouldn't. I knew like I, said, I knew he was in and out. And I I like I told you, I knew what was going on. But you know it never entered in my mind. And I I knew I could get to the hospital faster than the ambulance could get to me and get him back. And I I know that's not always your the best scenario, you know, but where we were in such a rural place, getting an ambulance to exactly where we were and finding us. I knew I could get yeah. into the hospital faster. Right. But it never, ever entered my mind to call 911 and tell them I was on the way. Well, that's where another story. We just happened, there were some guys from the club in Jonesboro and at Sam's or something, and somebody called them, and I don't know who it was, but told them to get to the hospital and tell them that they've got a heart case coming in. Um, and I've, I found all this out after the fact, of course, you know, I, the only thing I can remember on that ride was Patrick was trying to, he was holding it right under a hundred miles an hour. So the computer wouldn't, you know, cut the engine off. Shut it and, off. Yeah. Uh, 
and I could feel him hit the rumble strips passing people on the right side. So uh, that's that's about all I remember for the ride. Except when I got there, I was getting out of the truck, and I dropped a shotgun shell, and I was trying to pick it up when they came out there with a the gurney. Uh, and then they cut off a, and then they cut off a brand new pair of waders. Uh, I mean, from the he waist all the way to the boot. For a long time. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I I don't remember much once we got there to to the emergency. I remember Patrick leaving and going in, and the next thing I knew, I was on the table with some guy jumping up and down on my chest. So did you? Uh, I don't know how the proper way did you did you flatline? You had to yeah. flatline. He coded. Uh, twice. Twice, yeah. I knew it was at least twice. I couldn't remember if it was twice or three times, but he coded twice. Wow. And you, it, all, you like, know, it, it all, everything lined up the way it was supposed to for something like this to have happened. Like I said, I I knew waiting on the ambulance wasn't the right, it wasn't the right thing to do, even in this serious of a situation. But it just so happens, and this all happened on a Sunday. And you know what hospital staff is like on a Sunday. They're non-existent. Yep. It just so happened that they had actually had to call the cath lab team into the hospital about an hour prior to us arriving for a patient that they brought in from a local nursing home. And they had just finished working that patient up when we showed up. And from the time, from the time Dad called my phone to the time they had him in the cath lab putting stents in was 56 minutes. And wow. they they say with the type of heart attack he had, they call it the Widowmaker. It's the it hit his what is it the lower LAD. ascending a, it was the yeah. aorta lower ascending. Lower anterior is descending artery or something. Yeah. Well, they say you have an hour. They call it the golden hour. And so, what were were they reporting? Was fifty six minutes. What were they reporting back to you as you uh, waited out in the hallway, Patrick? Well, of course, when I when I got him there, and like like I said, when they were coming back out with a gurney. He told me, you know, he told me, I can't even really remember what he told me that first time, but he he said something about, you know, take care of your mom or something, you know, something like that. And, of course, I lost it then. That was the first time I'd let my emotions take over. And I I went in the waiting room and just bawled my eyes out. But I I knew where they, from the waiting room, I could see the door they went in. And, of course, they closed the door. But all I could do was stand there and cry and watch. And uh, so, so were nurses coming out and giving you reports of what was going not, on? Not, not at first, because everybody was in there panicking with him as he flatlined. And like you said, they you know they did the you know chest compressions. They broke like four of his ribs doing that. Uh, you know, they cut off his brand new pair of waders that he was all pissed off about. Uh, you know, all, all this was going on. And in the meantime, the, the couple of members that were in Jonesboro showed up. And that, you know, so I, I finally wasn't alone, but that still didn't, that door was still closed. Now you got to understand, and, you got to understand, Rocky, the chest compressions aren't like you see on TV. 
because they actually cracked my sternum too with the compressions. But you know, when I'd come back, when they'd shock me back, and I mean, they fried me the second time. They had that thing, you know, turn up to to uh, well done, and they I had burn marks all over my chest. But they said every time I'd come back, I would, you know, be com- combative. I was trying to punch the guy that was jumping up and down on my chest because it hurt, obviously. Uh, and that's why they kept at it. But you know, I think the last time they brought me back, they shocked me three times. You know, they levitated me off the table, they said. So uh, but that's when I bit my tongue almost in half. So, and then they got the stents put in. Yeah, so like then the door finally opened. And I could tell that something was still going on. So, it, you know, in my mind, that was that was a good thing because it's not like everybody was walking out with our hat in our hand or something. And a uh, nurse came and got me and took me to the door. And as as they carried him out of that room, headed to the cath lab, he told me, he said, "What happened to my dog?" And I'm. I'm just, I was caught off guard because, I mean, you know, a waterfowler and their dog is, is, That's what something I was that say. is something that most people don't know about, you know, unless you have that bond. And, and I have that bond with my dog, but like, I still wasn't worried. I wasn't worried about his dog. I knew where I it was. was. He still was. So he, he's like, he said, take care of my dog. I said, it's, it's, it's taken care of. You worry about you. And they got him to the cath lab, and that's when that's when my brother showed up. He was he was in the field. He was in the same field that we were in, except he was in the opposite end in a laydown blind with a couple of his buddies, and they were shooting mallards on one end of the field out of layout blinds, and and Dad and and what was fixed to be Jeff and me and and another uh, another couple folks were don't shoot out of the pit but anyway so steven shows up uh you know he couldn't even talk he was he's like you know he finally got out what's wrong and uh i don't we were probably i don't know about 20 minutes from there they they came out of the cath lab and said that the stents were in and he was recovering and uh and and by, by this time, like my mom still hadn't even showed up. You know, she had to drive an hour and a half from from Olive Branch to get to the hospital in Jonesboro. Like I say, she still wasn't there for another, uh, you know, fifteen minutes or so. Yeah, yeah then, the fun, the, then the fun the fun started then, according to what everybody said. It, like everybody, everybody that was duck hunting in that area was in the, the waiting room wearing camo. I was. I mean, you know, I I know a lot of people in Jonesboro. I'm very fortunate. And I mentioned to you about the fraternity of waterfowl hunters. And I'm not talking about a bunch of flat brim face painted barrel sticker wearing neophytes. I'm talking about the fraternity of waterfowl hunters that that know each other, that have that bond. And... uh, it was really uncanny come to hear it. They were fixing to build a new hospital over there, 700 and something million dollars. And if that hospital that's where it is now had been there when Patrick brought me up, I probably never would have made it to it. 
But the uh, the guy that's bank owned the mortgage on this hospital, or the note, uh, he called the director of the hospital and he said, I want you to go check on my friend, you know, Pat Pitt. This was Sunday afternoon. He's, he's asking what was wrong. He said, well, he's had a heart attack and, you know, he's at the hospital. And he said, well, Dr. White's there. Everything's under control. And he said, you don't understand what I said. Go check on my friend at the hospital. So I'm in CCU and the director of the hospital and the director of pharmacology and everybody from from anybody on down came walking in. Of course, the nurses went in a state of panic, you know, thinking it was uh, <laughs> uh, an inspection or something. But, you know, they came in to check on me, which, you know, just – I didn't realize at the time, and then after they left, the nurses were just like, you know, do you need anything? You know, do you want me to go buy you a new shotgun, or would you like my car, or whatever? I mean, they were just falling all over themselves to try to, you know, to be on the good list. But, uh, you know, every day, somebody that I knew from Jonesboro would come in and see me, even when they got me in a room. I was in a room for, what, a week, I guess, after they got me out of CCU. So I think you were in the hospital a total of like six and a half days. Yeah, but I got to hunt the last day of the season. How in the world did you hunt with the vibration of a gun on a broke sternum and and three broken ribs? Very slowly and very painfully. If you're going to be dumb, you got to be tough, Rocky. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, saying. you understand, Ace was right at his 7,000th duck. And uh, uh, we got his, you know, number 7,000 retrieve on the, the last day of the season. Now, you know, it wasn't easy walking, and, you know, thankfully I had somebody there to, you know, carry my gun and, and that sort of thing. And uh, But, it, you know, we we reached that milestone with this dog. He ended up going over 8,000 a couple of years later. But, uh, uh, wow. you know, you got to get your priorities straight. And Gail... Gail wasn't going to argue with me. She knew damn good well I was going to do it, you know, unless they put me in a cell. But, I, you know, I I knew what – I did not like to not know what I was doing, but I knew what I wanted to do and how I was going to accomplish it. So, uh, uh, yeah, here again, I had a lot of help. With, with, with that happening to you, um, perspective, what – what in life, as far as far as a perspective change for you from that oh, point forward? Well, priorities, of course, but uh, you know, family, friends, uh, you know, hug them, love them, talk to them every day because you never know when they might not be there. Uh, not to get melodramatic, but when I would code. I would go from, you know, number 10 on the paint chart to real pretty colors, and I was kind of like floating on clouds, just totally serene, no pain, no nothing. And then they'd bring me back on the other side, and I'd, you know, they, you know the pain would, would amp up all over again. So I guess you can say I've seen heaven, and it's not a bad-looking place. And, of course, the first thing some of my buddies said, well, at least you weren't somewhere where it was hot. So... uh you know, so, you know, I guess even as a center, just like a lot of other people, uh, I got a good look at it. But, I mean, it's it was graphic. I mean, just unbelievable uh, serenity. 
So, you know, I got that to look forward to when I do die. At least, you know, whatever pain I'm in goes away. Next up is one that most everybody that listens to the podcast remembers. It hit home with them. It really shook them up when they heard this story. A lot of people had never heard this story before it was told on the podcast. It's the story of the day that changed Ramsey Russell forever. And I will say this. If you remember this or haven't heard Life Short Get Duck's story, you need to hear this part, but you need to go back and find um, where Ramsey was in the hospital after this part. Coming out of the rabbit hole is what it was called. But anyway, here's put to the fiery test now. That summer, uh, just two weeks really before school let out on May 17th, 1982, the whole world changed. My whole world changed. It was, it was one of the most defining moments. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. I spent the last 36 years not talking about it, ignoring it, you know, and, and not ignoring it, but just burying it, burying it, you know, and, and there's really a lot of things in life that, that are just best forgotten. But I hadn't forgot that day, you know. In fact, every time I've looked in the mirror, Every time I've washed my hands and every single footstep I've taken in the past 36 years, I'm cognizant of that day. It, it's just inescapable. Mm-hmm. No matter how far I travel or anything else in this world, you know, there's there just no escaping uh, the, the events of that afternoon. It was pivotal. I had, at the time, I had a Springer Spaniel. I think I talked about that earlier. We raised Springers, and I had a little old Springer Spaniel. She wasn't worth a flip, but she was a good good pet. She hogged the covers at night on the bed, but she was a, she was a good little pet. And when she wanted in, boy, she'd scratch those doors. And uh, my mother had been on me about get, getting the doors painted and cleaned up. And I came home one afternoon from school. It was just, boy, what a beautiful day. On it just, it's just that day, middle of May. It's warm but not hot. Uh, everybody, you know, was coming home from work and mowing the grass and getting their weed eating and sitting out on the patio back in the days that you talked to your neighbors, you know, at the mailbox. And, you know, everybody knew everybody just that time of year. Just a beautiful pre-summer day. Summer was coming around. So before she got home from work, I had gone out and started painting the doors and, and doing some stuff. She came in, and in between jobs, she she went inside to do something. And so I'd gone out in the storeroom. You know, it was just a little old conventional uh, neighborhood home. You know, <clears throat> you know where you got the you got the garage, but then you got that little storeroom at the end of the garage, a little narrow ten foot wide or so storeroom. I had to paint those paintbrushes. Couldn't find any mineral spirits. It wouldn't have mattered whether it was mineral spirits or what it was, but I used gas. It wasn't no big deal. I was cleaning my paintbrushes, and then it happened. You know, I, it, it's, and I'll, I'll tell y'all, uh, to anybody still listening, that the next three months, four months of my life is it, it, a real dark memory. In fact, it, it, it's, it's like, you know, if, if, the, if, if I'm 52 years old, and if each year of my life was a chapter of a book, you know, right there, 15, 16 into 17, it's, it's like those three chapters were just ripped out. You, you buy this book, 52 chapters long, and right in the center on 15, 16, 17, up in that time period we're, we're fixing to start talking about, it's, it's just, it's just those chapters are gone. They're absolutely gone. 
and, and everything I remember, let's say chapter 16, is it, it's just real, real, like a like a surreal dream. Mm-hmm. And, and we can talk about that, but but it's just real dark. It's real clip, 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 clip. And then it's just big voids. Uh, and I think a lot of it, I was telling Rocky one day, I think a lot of uh, what I remember and don't may have been just buried in the past. You know, you, you put things behind you, you forget about it. And some of it, I think, was just was just a place I ended up getting myself into because of the situation. But but long story short, as I was cleaning those paintbrushes, uh, pilot light cut on in the storage room. And basically, the door was uh, closed. It, 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 Let me back you up for a second. I don't know. With the door nobody in the storage room. Nobody, oh. no, nobody knows. Nobody knows. I, I don't know. It, it wasn't wide open, obviously, because there wasn't enough ventilation. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, had it had it, mm-hmm. was it shut? Was it uh, would would it not cracked open enough? You know, the kind of stuff my shop teacher talked about fumes and everything. Hell, oh, come on, you're a 15 year old kid. You're just cleaning up a few paintbrushes. You don't really think about that. You don't think about a little pilot light. On, on a hot water heater, uh, doing that kind right. of stuff. Everybody knows you throw a flame around gas, but it blows up. But you don't think about you don't think about having just a little bit of open container uh, with, with 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 gas and stirring paintbrushes uh, for a few minutes as, as inducing something like what happened. But but the the, the event was uh, the explosion was. Uh, I mean, it's just like when that little that little arc of that little arc hits hits the gas vapor in a carburetor. Boom! It is it, it just that combustion, and it happened. And you know, later when I saw pictures, uh, years later when I saw pictures, you know, it it literally blew the entire uh, storage room wall to face. It just literally blew all that sheetrock out into the. Uh, it, it was significant. It blew it out into the garage. It did you maybe, feel? Maybe did you feel the uh, pressure? Like what that no, reminds me I, of, I, Ramsey, is like what I felt. You know. Yep, I was gonna say it reminds me like the, the, I think it's the Hurt Locker, you know, where where you talk about these talk or read about these guys that defuse um, IEDs and bombs and whatnot, and and you talk about what when it when the explosion occurs, there's so much pressure and compression that you know that uh, they, they say that your your you know your lungs explode especially if you have your mouth closed that's what happens to people when they die in explosions and in that kind of a situation for it to have enough power and pressure and compression to blow the drywall off of a wall you must have been i mean it was unfortunate yet it was really fortunate because you didn't lose your life and i know that's going to bring up a whole another topic but I'm looking at like, what did you do? You remember what you felt and what you saw when it, like, at the moment I, it happened? I, yeah, I, I, you know, the instant that it happened, I don't remember anything. Of course, I know that the heat was enough inside that you know all the plastic fishing rods and tennis shoes, you know, plastic uh, bait, you know, for for all that was styrofoam. Any of that kind of stuff you keep in the storeroom was gone. I mean, it was just toast. Mm-hmm. And, but what I remember. What I remember is, as I emerge, let's say from that door, what I what I remember is is, is two things. Uh, kind of to my peripheral vision, my mother having to come apart, and I remember the garage door opening to let the smoke out, and and coming under the garage as quick as it was opening with my neighbor across the street, young man, newly married, started home. He was in pharmaceutical sales. We became good friends throughout my teenage years. He was just one of them good neighbors, and uh, but he was on the scene. Now, what she later described that you know she was inside vacuuming or doing something, and she heard something, 
And to her, it sounded like something had fallen in the attic. And mm. she heard me screaming. And so she came out to see what was going on. And what he later described having heard was me screaming, my mother screaming, and just assuming all oh, them dang Russell boys have tied into it again. I mean, you know, brothers, I love my brother to death. We were close brothers, but, you know, brothers, brothers fight. Mm. And mm-hmm. uh, so he come over initially to break us apart because he could hear my mother. And I know he must have come over and seen the smoke and something going on because when I saw him, I remember seeing him coming, you know, under the as the garage door was raising, him coming under it, I'm, his eyes just as big, just just absolutely holy cow, and he had that he had a he had a fire extinguisher in his hand. I don't know. I've I've heard it described. I, I can't imagine what he and my mother must have seen, but I do remember, in in just little bits and pieces, I do remember walking outside the garage. I do remember Rusty's wife was a RN, a registered nurse. I remember her coming around. And she wasn't panicking. Were, were you, you know, were you still on fire? I, like when they came over there, no, no, when it, your it mom saw you. Re- it wasn't that. Uh, no, it okay, wasn't. It was it an wasn't, explosion. And it, was fire. It, it was just I was I was engulfed in in okay. a relatively closed area. I was engulfed in flame, like just just woof. Right. You know, I was engulfed right. in, right. and and then the heat, right. then the subsequent heat. And I remember pacing up and down my my, my sidewalk hurting you know where's the ambulance where's the ambulance you know what you know just just i remember just god knows what i was saying just talking to you know you, you could see and, uh could you see could oh you yeah see I, I remember i remember okay yeah okay i, I saw okay. bits and pieces i don't remember seeing myself i was wearing cut off jeans and a pocket t-shirt when i when this was mm-hmm. going on and I, I i just remember you know and then i remember the ambulance finally getting there and by the time i walked down to the end of the driveway i know and I was later told that practically the entire neighborhood was sitting at the end of my driveway. I mean, you know, neighbors for five or six houses seeing smoke mm-hmm. coming out, hearing the commotion. You know, they've been sitting there just minding their own beer after work, minding their own beer, minding their own business, drinking a cold beer, mowing grass, or doing what they were doing like neighbors do that time. Of, and seeing the commotion walk down, and then, and then, you know, more and more people, more and more people. My some of my best friends from ten houses down had had you know coming running up. And you know, uh, I, I I I know what they later described seeing with skin and flesh and things just just uh, in shock. But right. they didn't have to tell me that. I didn't have to even know what it looked like because I can see it. I can remember seeing the looks in their eyes. That's what I remember. Is is you're is you're looking around you. I can remember seeing the look. Of helpless neighbors, I can they're, they're, the look of their eyes. I can remember seeing the the look of helplessness in my neighbors and my friends' eyes. And when the mm-hmm. ambulance came up, of course they didn't. You know, for some reason they were out of uh, some of the little water you pour over that little uh, saline or whatever you pour over somebody. And they 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 finally just put some water on me to to, to get the whatever cool it off or whatever you do, get some of the debris off. And they, uh, I remember laying down on the stretcher and them beginning to cover me with a wet sheet and, and as and as I was thinking to be picked up and put into the ambulance, I remember them trying to cover my face with that wet sheet and, and me mm. yelling no. I mean it, it was it was serious stuff, but let me tell you what, that, that wet sheet wasn't coming over my face. 
and and I so I remember because uh, why 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 what was what were you trying to I was what breaking were you out scared I, just, of? I I didn't want that wet sheet on my face I, I didn't I didn't want to I, I wanted to be able to see my mother understand my mother was 18 years older than I am so she had made her 32 years old it's 32 year old mom you know it's a typical 32 year old mom and as a daddy now I can't imagine what she was going through I can't yeah, I just, literally can't yeah. imagine what my mother was going through. You know, so mm-hmm. she gets on the ambulance with me. Wanting she, to trade places with you. Oh, I guarantee, guarantee you. you know, she okay, wanted baby, to trade okay, places baby. with you immediately. Crying her, 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 I, I can, I can, you know, I can remember her eye shadow running down her, her uh, uh, the black lines running down her face with the teeth. Mascara. You yeah. know, uh, and it's just, it's just, and I just remember, remember, you know, and, and, and here's the funny thing. I was busting tables at Shoney's back in those days. I was scheduled to go to work that afternoon. And I, I remember telling her on the way to the, the, the hospital, you know, call Andy and tell him I'm not going to make it this afternoon. Mm-hmm. Call him. And, and she's like, okay. You know, I mean, she was like, yeah, yeah, you know. But I'm sitting there just <laughs> telling her. And, and, and I can remember where we were. I, I, I knew from the curve and the bumps in the road, we were right there by Waterworks Curve in downtown Jackson. When I had that conversation, you can, you know, the whole big arc on the freeway when you get around the Mississippi Highway Patrol. I, I knew where I was just from the curves in the road, even though I'm inside an ambulance. And I and I, I remember telling her, you know, I'm not going to be at work, you know, and, and what am I going to do about school? I've got tests coming up, you know, and, and I, I really need to pass this this class this time. I don't want to go back to summer school. And and I remember break break. I remember being in the emergency room, just a flurry of of, of white coats and nurses and and serious voices coming around. Uh, I can remember them cutting off my clothes, cutting off my shirt, cutting off my shorts, cutting off my you know, uh, just cutting and 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 of course was anything, just, you know, was anything melted? Was anything melted to you or burned into your skin or anything like that? I, I don't I don't remember. I, it could have been. Remember. And I know I know it seems like somebody said that there were uh, there were some things hanging off of my clothes when I when mm-hmm. I came out. So you know it must have the concussion must have knocked me down uh, inside mm-hmm. there inside that inside that room. It must have knocked me down. Somebody seemed to say I don't I don't recall what, but I do seem to recall. Somebody later saying that there were there were items stuck to me, and uh, did they have to? to was a fire? Was, was there a fire in the room? Like was the house on fire at that point? Did they have to no, put that out? No, or was it no, just a blo- no, not, was an not explosion? That was all, no, I, you know they called an ambulance, and I, and I, I don't know, I don't know. You know that's, that's a good question. I know the house didn't burn down. I think mm-hmm. it was just that heat inside that building melted a lot of stuff, damaged whatever was in there. And blew the blew the sheetrock out into the garage, but it didn't catch the house on fire. You know, I, I ended up living that house through high school. My mother lived in it for another ten or fifteen years. You know, right there where it was. But I remember them cutting those shorts off, and and me asking. I was hurting, but I wasn't. If you know what I mean. And and it, I remember asking for a drink of water, drink of water, drink of water, whatever, drink of water. And I just, you know, I remember a nurse. Walking up to me and 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 placing a piece of ice in my mouth, and she said, "Just just you know, said something to fact, just just let that melt." And I and I, I just that piece of ice in my mouth, and it just it gave me something to kind of focus and hold on to. And at that point, it's just like cut to the next scene because that's the last truly salient thought that I had in a long time. And and for the rest of the story, uh, wherever we go with it. You know, you just gotta, you just gotta understand. You know, so much of this stuff, I never did remember, 
a lot of it had been buried with 36 years of, of time and, 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 you know, want to forget. And, and the rest of it is, is just like kind of a nightmare. Now, let me say this. A year later, let's say, fast forward a year, I'm, I'm sitting at the kitchen table. I'm back home. I'm a wreck, and we'll talk all about that later. But I'm sitting at home again with my mother. My parents have since divorced. I was going through the throes of a divorce right then. It's just she and I were sitting there, and, and you know, there was so much in the next six to eight months after that event, after that nurse placed that ice in my mouth. There, there's so much uh, missing. There's so much that that was real. It, it, it's it's real difficult to to discern whether it was reality or mm-hmm. like uh, euphoric uh, dream. It, you know, mm-hmm. and, and here now here's the deal. You know, when you when you might hear some of these stories or hear some of these thoughts, it'd be natural to say or to assume, well. Of course he was thinking that. You know, he was, man, they had him medicated high as a kite. No, 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 no. But let me tell you what they don't do on on, uh, on big trauma like that right there. They do not hook the man up to IB so he can just drift away. That is not what they do. Uh, that is not it at all. Um, I later learned there there was no there was no painkiller for the next six months. Um, for, they, they, needed, they needed stuff to heal. Now, first we'll talk about the first two weeks. Then I'll get into some other other stuff, but I, I was gonna I was gonna say something, uh, Ramsey. That you know, when when someone gets injured, okay, like even if it's bad, has a car wreck, and you break your legs or you break your arm or you break your jaw, and you have surgery, and the the your surgeon or your nurses tell you, you know, you're going to be in this cast for eight weeks or even eight months or, or, or a year and a half. Whatever it is, that's one thing. But then what happened to you, I'm sure at some point when that all happened where you realized this is the rest of my life. This isn't, there's no, I'm not going to be in a body cast for 18 months and I'm going to get up and and then I'm going to go into rehab and everything's going to be just fine. You're looking at things like this is the rest of my life because I'm burned and I'm scarred, right? Well, yeah, but but you know, really and truly, that part of that part of reality really didn't hit probably until about five and a half, six months after three months anyway after the event. But because it, it it was so trauma, it was so critical. For example, I learned a year later um, when I was home and I was talking to my mother one night, you know, just trying to sift through memories and just make sense of of what I thought I remembered, and I, and I told her I had a dream. Somewhere along these horrible dreams I had, I had a dream, and there were bright lights, you know, it was real, real bright in this room, and I was looking down the length of my body, and it was very noisy, and everybody tried to come through the door at one time, and they were putting paddles on my body, and, and I could see my body bucking. And, 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 you know, it was, just, it was just this commotion. And she was quiet. I was, I was sitting there drinking a cup of coffee and, and staring at the table, telling her this memory, this dream. And she was so quiet, I looked up at her, and, and, and tears were just streaming off her face onto the table. And she said, honey, I don't, I don't know how you remember that because that's the night they brought you in. You died. You died. And, and that is exactly what happened to you. 
and and I think you know I'm not I'm not a doctor I'm not an expert but you know you're technically dead when your heart stops and that 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 little line on the on the counter starts beeping and flatlining. But but you know maybe maybe uh, your body has to cool off maybe your brain which is a, just a recording device has to has to cool off to a certain point but I know I remembered it and I described exactly what happened to where it it hit her so real later that she said I don't, I just don't know how you remember that but that is the night you brought you in I died and so I'm stuck for the next two weeks it was two weeks for my 16th birthday it was just just right there on the end of school year. I'm, I'm stuck in an uh, intensive care unit in Jackson, Mississippi, Methodist Methodist uh, Hospital, I believe. Uh, excuse me, downtown Baptist Hospital, and that's where I was. And, and you know, it's very, very critical. The, the the doctors told my parents. They said he's got an eight percent chance of living. We ninety six percent mortality rate. He, he's going to die. We're sorry, your son's going to die. If he does manage to live, he will lose his right arm and both his legs. It's that bad. And and then where the the big you know, trust you me, nobody at the time in Jackson, Mississippi, ER, intensive care unit, was prepared for that level of trauma for an extended period. Like you said, this was going to be major. This wasn't just, okay, you know, you're you're in ICU for a few weeks and we'll move you to a hotel room. It, it, they need, I need a specialized treatment, apparently. And that was a big struggle is where do we go? Where, where, did, where does he go? What does he do? You know, if he lives. You know, uh, 8%, 8% chance of survival at age 15, almost 16 years old. I think my parent, I think my parents had, had talked to a funeral home. I think they had started thinking about a casket, you know, and, and, and making arrangements because that, that's what, that's what the medical science says was going to happen. There was a, um, at that time of my life, maybe a lot of people listening today, both of y'all, you know, there's an organization called Shriners, and all I really knew about Shriners was, you know, they rode those little mini bikes, wore those red hats with the tassel on it at parades. You know, <laughs> let me tell you what Shriners is. They raise they raise a million plus dollars per day that goes into their charity, which is is, is burned and crippled children. And they've got they've got the foremost burn units in the in the world, right here, uh, three of them at the time, right here in the United States of America. And their cutoff date was age 16, and I was right there at it. And it just so happens that it just so happens that Rusty, the first guy on the scene, his stepdaddy was uh, Shriner, was the head of Shriners here at um, in Jackson, Mississippi. Reached out through the network, and on my birthday, May twenty eighth, uh, nineteen eighty two, I was airlifted down to Galveston, Texas. And at that point, uh, I couldn't tell you anything going on. I I I couldn't. I couldn't tell you anything except that I knew, I just knew I was being moved to Texas. And that's, that's kind of what, that's really kind of what I recall. Next up and finally is a story with Jake Latondres. Jake was in British Columbia on the side of the mountain, side of a mountain filming a sheep hunt when his life and filming career changed forever. Um, the story was told Way back at the beginning when we started the End of the Line podcast, and some of you may not have heard this story, but Jake was, like I said, Jake was on a sheep hunt up in British Columbia, and he get a horse fell on him, did a lot of damage to him, and 
you know, being eight hours from the nearest city didn't help things at all. It's a story of perseverance, getting out of there, getting back home, and getting healed up. And for anybody, it, it should have taken, you know, a couple of years to heal up from this. Jake, man, came back guns a blazing with that camera after this happened. Listen to this story now. I don't know the word I'm looking for. The word that I'm looking for is to not the point across, but the the you know the story Experience. of how of how bad it was for you. The whole experience. Yeah. Was, yeah. Well, first of all, I was I was up in British Columbia, and I have a Swiss. I have a Swiss client that I film quite a few mountain hunts for, and he had hired me to film this hunt and photograph it. And so we had gone up there. You know, it was a, it's a long way to get in. People that don't know, in fact, I'm editing this film now, and you'll see because I'm editing it, editing it in a way that that takes the viewer from the beginning of the hunt all the way to the end of when I got when I got hurt. And, and flew out in a chopper, and the whole rescue and the whole thing is in this video. Um, but but for people that don't understand what it's like to go sheep hunting, it's an ordeal. You know, it's not you know it's not like you wake up in the morning and you go you know brush your teeth and and put your camo on, grab your bow and go climb into a tree. I mean, you fly to you know I flew from Denver to to Vancouver, from Vancouver to Smithers. Um, British Columbia, which is a town very similar to Steamboat, Colorado, it's that it's a ski town, and it's got that western feel to it. Then at at, at um, in Smithers, you get on a float plane, and we get into this 1952 Beaver float plane, which was a whole experience within itself. I mean, it's like getting into a Volkswagen Bug with wings on it, <laughs> and you know, you fly for three hours through mountain passes around clouds. Um, you're dodging storms and and trying to stay. And you know, there's no line of there's no line of sight like or or you know or autopilots like jets have. I mean, this is like dri you're driving. I mean, you're 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 just like you're in an Uber. <laughs> you're in an Uber plane through the mountains. And so we finally get to uh, well, hey hey get let me to ask our for you. Before from Vancouver to Smithers, what were you what were you in from there? Just a small commuter jet? No, 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 no. They have a they have a big airport, not a big airport there, but they have airports there that you know um, that, that that'll handle big jets. And I don't know that it, I don't remember which you know what model jet it was, but you know it was a it was a hundred passenger plane. It wasn't a, a massive jetliner with you know 350 people on it but you know there's 100 people on the plane and so we get to smithers we get our float plane we fly into our our, our first base camp and when you fly to your first base camp that's where you start saddling up that's you stay in a cabin overnight and then you get up very early typically it's an eight or nine hour horseback ride in from from that base camp into your sheep camp which is it you know up in the mountains uh typically on a stream or on a river, so 
so we rode our eight or nine hours in and uh really I, I guess to make a long story short um we had you know we had gone on this sheep hunt and we were there for eight days sheep hunting you know in the mountains it's 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 demoralizing it's it's tiring it's very physical there's you know the air's different the sun's different the rain is different the snow's different it's just a different different atmosphere when you're up in the mountains up in the high country so we had we had approached we had it, it took us seven or eight days eight days to find a what we thought was a was a full curl ram that was a legal ram that my hunter could to, could harvest and we spent an entire day, I would say the better part of 10 hours, trying to get to this ram. We finally got to him when he bedded down, and he stood up, and he walked towards us, and he got within 180 yards. So we got a really good look at him. And, you know, in 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 Canada, the rule is on any ram, it has to either be full curl, which full curl means the tip of the of one of the horns has to curl up past the bridge of of the ram's nose. So if you were looking at it straight perpendicular um, in a profile um, direction at his face, that that curl would come and 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 tip the tip would exceed the bridge of the nose. Well, this ram or or it has to be eight years old or older. So this ram, we you, you got to count the the rings on on the horns. They're like growth rings on a tree, you, you, and you can count them with a good spotting scope. That's why Swarovski and Leica do so well in the hunting world because the big game world, those guides and hunters need the really high high level optics to be able to count things like growth rings or to measure, you know, a billy a mountain goat's horns to make sure it's you know nine or ten inches or whatever it is. So we determined this ram to be seven years old. So he was a year under what we really wanted, but he looked like a full curl ram. But the outfitter and the assistant guide had decided it was so close that we better pass this ram up because if you shoot the ram and he's not legal, man, that turns into a whole different scenario um, with you know with the natural resources department up in Canada, the federal their federal uh, wildlife officers i mean it, it's a that's a major major party foul and the violation is you know probation for the outfitter they might pull it they can pull they have the jurisdiction to pull his license and all that so um the reason i'm telling you this is because that's what ended our trip we we had four more days on this trip but my hunter was so frustrated and so just just worn down man i mean he was worn down to a nub and he just called it quits. He said, I've had enough. Let's just go. So we went back to our, our sheep camp. We slept it off. And we woke up the next morning and asked, you know, asked my client again, are you sure you want to give this up? Because there's a whole lot more country to, to, to you know, to look for another ram. And there's a lot of, we, I mean, we see 100 rams a day. We just didn't see the right rams. And sorry not 100 rams 100 sheep a day and you know five or six or eight or ten rams a day just not the right ram so he yeah we woke up the next morning he decided we were going to call it quits so 
we packed all of our stuff up. We got all the pack horses packed up. We folded up camp, and we were going to go back to the same base camp to catch our float plane out. So we had an eight-hour horseback ride to get back to this lake. Uh, Hold on just a second. (laughs) There's no telling what is invested in this trip. People don't realize. I was going to say the same thing, right? A sheep hunt costs forty to fifty thousand dollars nowadays, and people don't realize how much money that the the outfitters have. I mean, you got a plane ride; those plane rides are expensive, man. A two or three hour plane ride from Smithers into a backcountry lake on a on a beaver is 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 expensive. And then you've got all that food, all the horses. They got to bring oats and whatnot for supplemental feed for the horses. There's, you know, four guy. There's four, two guides and two assistants in camp. A cook. I mean, there, there's tents. It, it's, 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 it is, it is. I can't wait to release this film because I, I edit. I'm editing this film so that you, you, literally, as the viewer. You feel like you feel like you're in the cockpit of the plane. You feel like you're on the horse riding it through the timber. You're and walking up into the high country and spotting the sheep. I mean, it is the real deal experience. And for those most people haven't experienced it, and for those that haven't, you know, if you ever if you ever have the inclination to do something that stupid, go do it because it's worth it's worth the experience. I mean. It, it, it is it's it's a tremendous life changing experience, and I think that's why you know I always say one of the most difficult things to explain to people is the 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 joy of suffering, and, and it, it's a it's like an oxymoron when you say it like that. But the fact is, you ask yourself so many times every single time I go on a sheep hunt. I've been on I don't know probably a dozen sheep hunts now all over the world. And every single one of them, I'm going, why in the hell am I even here? This is just stupid. I could be home with my family right now, wrestling with Walker on the floor, you know, drinking a beer. And here I am, you know, in Mongolia, suffering, putting myself (laughs) through this crap. (laughs) And, you know, and then, and as soon as it's done, as soon as you get on your plane to go home, you're you're thinking about the next trip and and which one you're going to do next. It's it's a, it's very difficult to explain, but it's a very addictive addictive activity, and it's not for everyone. But people that do it, you know, they they understand. So my point my point in asking that was, man, it is a. Now I guess I'm thinking about it from the regular old Joe's point of view. You 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 written that check and you're saying okay i'm done i don't have my ram but i'm done that's it that's that's the deal right there right i mean that is the that's the the pivotal point of the hunter because he's got so much invested and for him to just walk away from it that's why you know people that sheep hunt are typically wealthy they're either wealthy or they're do-it-yourself guys that hunt up in Alaska, or they're Canadian residents, and they're 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 the hardest working people in the entire hunting world. I promise you that. I mean, it is it, uh, sheep hunters are a different breed. It's a it's a it's a step back in time, 
you know, people. But it kind of, but, but it has to go back to what you're saying. This guy had to be just totally emotionally and physically shot. drained. Say, screw that. Yeah. He was done. He was done. I mean, you know when you're done. You know what I'm saying? And for him to, you know, to dump $45,000 in the garbage can, I mean, you can't say that because, you know, you did, you didn't kill your ram, but you still had an eight-day experience that was unbelievable. I mean, it was, you know, it was an amazing experience. And so you're right. You know, it was a pivotal point. We packed all of our stuff up. It took it takes hours to pack up. So we woke up at five thirty or whatever time it was, and I would say at about nine thirty or ten o'clock we were finally packed up, ready to go. All the horses were packed up. The saddle horses. We got on the saddle horses, and the the outfitter Jim asked us to ride across the river and just stage over there in the dirt on the other side of the river so that they could turn the pack horses loose because you know in a in a mountain hunt or any kind of a any kind of a mountain horseback adventure you've got saddle horses and you've got pack horses and the pack horses are carrying these two big pantry boxes typically i mean they're either duffel bags on the back of these horses uh, wrapped in canvas you know wax canvas uh, tarps or they've got these hard plastic pantry boxes, which is typically what they use because they're secure and they're watertight and all that stuff. So we're staged, me and I forget how, there were six or seven of us staged on the other side on saddle horses, literally, you know, thinking about the ride home. God, this is going to suck. We've got eight hours on the saddle again. You know, I just want to get back to the lake. To get a good night's sleep, we had some whiskey and beer back at the the, the normal base camp. So you know we were looking forward to getting back to, I mean that's civilization compared to what we had been living in. <laughs> and the Wranglers started turning these pack horses loose. This is where things went bad. They started turning the pack horses loose, and all of a sudden. Uh, you know it was like this loud. It was like the Kentucky Derby. They cut all these pack horses loose at the same time and they hit the river and when you if you've never seen a horse walking across a river like a backcountry river they are clumsier than hell like they can't they're stepping on their own feet they're tripping you know they're not falling down but they almost are it's a very clumsy awkward awkward you know circumstance for a horse to cross a river like that and so these horses come barreling across the river and I turned around. My horse started getting nervous. Her end, her her ears were pinned back. You know, the hair on her back started to raise. When when one horse, they're, they're pack animals. So when one horse freaks out, they're like deer. They all freak out. And so my horse got nervous, man. And one of the pack horses, when I turned around, it looked like the Kentucky Derby coming across the river, and it was loud. It was just clang, clang, clang. You know, just just chaos. And so my horse started bucking and kicking, and this the first pack horse that came across the river freaking hit a tree, hit one of the pantry boxes on a tree, and it just went boom right behind my horse. And that sent my horse into a frenzy. She started bucking. She was kicking and bucking, trying to get me off of her back. So I had to pull right on her rein. 
so to keep her 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 head you want to pull left or pull pull right depending on which way the horse is going when they start freaking out and you want to keep their head tight on the rein so that you ultimately go in circles okay that's that's your goal and then you can ride it out and when things start to calm down you just let up on the rein your horse slowly calms down and everybody's cool that ain't what happened. My horse, there were too many pack horses, and it took too long. And I think my horse, um, her name was Ellie May, still is. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she, I think what happened was she, it, it took too long, and she felt trapped with her head pulled tight like that. She felt trapped. So she went up on her back legs straight up, straight up and down, perpendicular to the ground. I'll never forget it. I came off the saddle. I had my camera bag, my pack, my low-pro camera bag on my pack. I came off the saddle, and I hit the ground. I just slid right down her butt because she was vertical, like like the Lone Ranger's horse. And she kept coming. She didn't stop vertically. She kept coming, and she inverted. She got upside down. And all I saw was horse falling on top of me. So I, I like kicked back my, my torso. Um, I kicked back to try to get out of the way. Thank God I did. When she came down, she came down on her back hip, and her back hip came down right on my lower right leg and crushed it. I mean, I heard when when the horse hit my leg and she came to the ground, I heard it go like. I mean, I I mean. I'll never forget that sound. And it, it that wasn't it. She, when she came down, she came down on her butt. Then the rest of the horse had to come down. So her head was swinging back like a giraffe because she had so much momentum. And I literally had to roll to my left or else her head, neck, and upper body would have come down on top of my head. And she came down and hit the ground. And it was just like, I mean, it was like a giraffe hitting the ground. It was just poof. And she got up, she rolled, luckily she rolled to my right, I was to her left, and then she got up, and man, I could, I remember her bit was hanging out of her mouth, it was bent like at a 90 degree angle from her hitting the ground so hard, and, and she ran off, like she literally bolted and ran off into the timber up this ridge, and, and I'm laying there on the ground. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Before you say it, I'm going to stop you. There was an oh shit second in there, right? Between the time well, that I'll you just happened. There was an oh shit second that you knew what just happened because you heard it. You heard the sound. And before your brain registering and sending those pain signals to your leg. Yeah, I mean, it was scary. I'm not going to lie to you. I knew my leg was broke. I just didn't know how bad. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I knew it. And you could, I mean, you could almost smell it. I mean, I, it's hard to explain. People that have been in accidents like that understand. Um, but you just know, you know. So you immediately start thinking. First thing I thought was, okay, I'm going to get up. You know, this is this is like a bad dream. I'm going to get up and I'm going to stand on my leg. Maybe it's just sprained. You know, maybe maybe I got really lucky like I always do. 
It's going to make me throw up. Well, yeah, I know. Uh, dude, I, I stood up, and my face went white. Like, I had a white... I just had a white out when I stood up on my and put weight on my right leg, and I went down on the ground. That's when I started screaming f bombs. Okay, that's what, that's, that's what I was about friends. to ask. Yeah, how long yeah, did it take start to, screaming for for the for the pain or the realization of what you know what really happened? You know, to set in. Uh, yeah, you, immediately, immediately, I didn't know. I, mean, I, I had my gaiters on. I had my you know, my rain, my sick of pants and my boots, my, my boots, and I just didn't even want to take it off because I didn't want to look at it. I had no idea how bad it was, but I knew it was bad. So I started screaming for my friends, the people, you know, the rest of the team, you know, I'm, I, every word, every other word that came out of my mouth was an F-bomb. I was just trying to get someone over there because – my first reaction was, I get my satellite phone, go right, right up the ridge and call Global Rescue because... That's what I was going to ask not, you, Jake. At what moment in all of this is going on, did it register in your brain, okay, a hospital is not just right down the interstate. I am in the middle of nowhere <laughs> with a broken leg. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me, Rocky, if I was thinking that when I saw the horse coming down on top of me. I mean, that that's, that's just what... something that's in the back of your head. I've had Global Rescue uh, membership for four or five years now, and you know, you never want it to kick in, but when, if but if you need it, you're really glad that you have it, and so. And I keep a tag. I keep, man, I keep Global Rescue tags on all of my bags, my backpacks. I keep one in my passport wallet. I have, I have one, a screenshot of one on my phone. I have those things everywhere so that if I were unconscious, someone came over and looked at me, they'd probably see it. It's a red tag hanging off of my backpack and, and everywhere else. All my backpacks have a tag on it. So, you know, someone would identify with, with making that decision very quickly if I were, you know, immobilized or, or, you know, unconscious or whatever. So my friend, these guys, these two Wranglers come over first, and they got to me, and they were, I could just see the oh shit look on their face because they could see it on my face. And I said, get my phone, get my satellite phone, go call Global Rescue right now, please. Here's the number. So I gave them my tag. They rode up to the top of the ridge. They called Global Rescue, and they, uh, the guy, Wade, came back down, and he said, um, it's going to be about three and a half hours before Chopper can get here, but they're on their way. Mm. So, hey, so what, Jake, okay. Jake, I don't think I've ever asked you this question. Is, is, is it, like I said, we've talked about the story a bunch of times. On a trip like this, on a guided trip, you have, of course, you have first aid kit. What is there? Medical what, kit with me. What's in it for pain, though? Dude, you don't want to know, Rocky. I mean, I carry not, a full not enough medical. whiskey, probably. Man, I have. I carry morphine <laughs> with me. I carry hydrocodone. I carry. So you, do, you did tutors. have that? Oh you. yeah. Okay. I carry, I have a full-blown medical kit in my bag, in my duffel bag at base camp at all times on every trip that I go on. I have I have stuff to treat, you know, diarrhea, giardia. I have stuff to treat 
I have I have I have azithromycin for antibiotics for you know infections, respiratory infections. I have sutures if I get cut real bad. I've got morphine. My my physician uh, prescribed some morphine to me for for you know for the exact reason why you know breaking having a compound fracture or something where you would need that kind of pain relief, but. Um, you know, he, he prescribed it to me in suppository form. And I remember when, when he, he, he said, you need these, you need to put these in your medical kit, but I'm going to give them to you in suppository form so I know that you won't take them unless you really need them. <laughs> um, okay, so, so, no, go ahead. Go ahead. So I, I told, uh, you know, once he came back and said, this is going to be a three and a half hour wait. Then the first thing they did, they were very helpful. Uh, those those wranglers and guides, the outfitters, uh, employees, they you know they're prepared for stuff like that because you just never know. People do get hurt. I mean, you're dealing with axes and chainsaws and horses and mountains and loose rocks and you know just all kinds of stuff, man. So you never know what can happen. They got me comfortable and. I started getting really dehydrated, so they brought me a bunch of water. Um, I, I pulled some snacks out of my my camera bag and started eating a, a sandwich that I had in there because I knew I needed to take some painkillers, but I needed to put something on my stomach first. So then I had him go and open up one of the pantry boxes on one of the pack horses and get my medical kit out. And then I took some uh, I took some hydrocodone. Um, to to kill the pain, and literally within 30 minutes, I honestly didn't even feel any pain um, unless I moved, (laughs) and then it was really bad. Okay. Um, So I've got to ask this now, only because I know that you did this, but at what point did you start hitting record on your camera? (laughs) Because I know you Pretty much right then. When he came back and said, this is going to be three and a half hours, (laughs) My first thought was, well, let's get comfortable, and I might as well film this because what else am I going to do for three and a half hours? I can't sit here and complain well, I, about I'll this never, because I'll, I'll never forget forget that when, and it was probably two days after that when you and I were texting, and we we're texting back and forth. Hey man, how was the trip? And the first thing you replied with, well, I have bad news. And I was and I was with Katie, my wife, and I thought, well, if, he te- if, he, if he's telling me he has bad news, then at least he's alive. So, so what what has happened? And then you go into telling me all this, and it wasn't long before I asked that same question I just asked you. I was like, okay, all this happened and it sucked, and and which you you're. you're the next part of the story is going to explain where you were when me and you were texting. But uh, I said, at what point did you start recording? <laughs> and 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 you and and that's yeah. I mean, that, that's pretty much what you said. You said when when we realized yep. that we were just kind of stuck there and no, and which there's nothing you could do anyway. I mean, it's not like you could rush. I mean, you know, there wasn't anything you could do. You what know? else you going to do? Yeah, you got yeah. a broken yeah. leg. You're not moving anywhere. So, yeah. you know, and I mean, it was just natural for me to grab it's a story. And, you know, I was, about, I was half, half, I had halfway asked my question myself whether I should or not because 
you know, I thought, well, wonder if people are going to think that I'm taking advantage of this situation and right. I'm going to try to, you know, make myself look like a hero or something stupid like that. And it wasn't that at all. It was really about, I mean, this may not ever happen to me again. I'm glad, thank God, right now I'm alive because i got two children at home at the time. And I was really concerned about them. And I was thinking about, had that horse hit me in the sternum or the head, I probably wouldn't be awake right now. And, you know, just all those things, you start just thinking about what could have happened. So, you know, naturally, again, I just started telling my story on my camera um, and, and filmed everything from, um, from laying there, I did a, a selfie interview. I had one of my buddies uh, hold the camera while I was, you know, drinking water and taking some medication and and just just talking, just waiting this out. And so, the, finally, after three and a half hours, I hear the the helicopter, you know, coming through one of the valleys. And sure enough, here he comes. He was he was on. He, he didn't know exactly where we were. We gave him GPS coordinates, and that put him within you know a half a mile of us. So um, he was circling around, searching for us, and and you know we were waving our arms. He finally found us. He circled around, got downwind, and came in for a landing, and landed literally on the dry part of the riverbed, right next to me. And man, I just broke down. At that point, I was like, you know, I'm getting out of here. My friends, the the the, the Wranglers, picked me up, you know, in a in a, um, a in a very organized medical medical. I forget what you call it. Um, God, what do you call that when you put a when you hand, when you build a stretcher out of you know raw materials? What do you call that? I, I can't oh. remember. Oh, it's a uh, whatever. They, 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 they. You know, they locked their arms together. Four of them did, and built a seat for me with their arms. And they carried me over to the helicopter, and they put me in the seat. And my leg was freaking throbbing at that point because I hadn't moved in three and a half hours. All the swelling had set in. It was stiff, hard as a rock, and it hurt like a sob. And so I'm, I'm filming all this. I'm literally filming all this. <laughs> And they put me in the helicopter, and the the pilot starts the helicopter back up, and the rotors start turning, and it's that boo 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 boo. Man, it was just surreal. It was like everything was in slow motion, and I'm in tears because it it was emotional, and I'm a I'm an emotional sensitive guy anyway, and I'm just in tears thinking, man, my friends just stayed back with me. They helped me. They weren't going to leave me. They never left my side. You know, they asked, they were bringing me water and food and medicine and whatever. It was just a, it was a very humbling experience. So we finally take off and, and honestly, and you'll see it on the film, when we took off, I was in a, it was a bubble, it was a bubble helicopter. And I don't know helicopter models, but it was a bubble, one of those small, you know, two people in the front and two small seats in the back. And the whole thing was a glass bubble. and. So I'm filming us lifting off. It was me and the pilot and my my client were with us, and I'm filming it down. And as we took off, you know, it reminded me of the last episode of Mash when um, when Trapper was flying off and Hawkeye was standing there waving at him, 
it was I don't know if y'all remember that, but it was, you know <laughs> that was like the greatest <laughs> last episode ever of any episodic series in the history of television. <laughs> um but that's what it reminded me of because we were I was leaving those guys behind. They still had and it by this time it was, you know, one or two o'clock in the afternoon mm. and they still had an eight hour horseback ride ahead of them to get to their and to they to their still had camp. to they still had to ride. Sucked. They had they well, they had they rode three hours in the night just to get back, you know, or four hours. I'm gonna I'm gonna do something right here that's gonna drive a lot of people crazy, and say that this is the part where it's gonna come to to be continued. Guys, like I told you, it was three really great stories that you heard today. I know that the podcast is a little bit longer than it normally is but these are three really great stories that have been told on this podcast it i think it really changed the direction um really shot the podcast to one of the highest rated podcasts in the hunting world that it is today because of these great stories that these guys not only were brave enough to tell but give you a great example to look up to because of the perseverance that they came through this they didn't let it define them but it made them it made them tougher made them stronger made them strive for success more really appreciate you being here but thank you again for being here for this edition of the end of the line podcast powered by DuckSouth.com.